Welcome to the Brain Injury Roundtable podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about brain injury. My name is Anya Patel, and I will be your host. I suffered a non-athletic brain injury in 2018, and I'm the founder of Calling My Storm, a New Jersey nonprofit organization that works to support people with brain injuries on the road to recovery and healing. An injury like this takes everything from you. It's your identity as well, the things that, you know, the first question that people ask when you meet someone for the first time is usually what do you do for a living so when you can't identify yourself with that anymore you really struggle with or what do I have left I think one of the benefits of brain injury is that it does show you who really is a good friend within the past year I've re-realizing my focus in life my purpose in life and that's to definitely help people who have been going through post-concussion symptoms just like me To learn more about Call Me My Storm, check out our website, callmemystorm.com, or click the link in our bio. Today, I'll be speaking with Joe, who is misdiagnosed and is working towards getting proper acknowledgement of her illness after a journey of over 20 years. We'll be talking about how advocacy helped her throughout her recovery journey. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I absolutely love the work that you're doing, and I'm so excited to hear your story. Thank you. So basically, I, I had a road traffic accident in the year 2000. On the way back from a school athletics event, I was a teacher, and uh, a man coming the other way, he turned around because his daughter was was having um, a tantrum in the back of the car and didn't anticipate a bend that was coming up. So he didn't bend and drove straight into me, basically, going about 50 to 60 miles an hour. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Now, at the time, it wasn't a problem. I don't remember anything. And I don't remember the five weeks I was in hospital or really the weeks after that. But the, the hardest thing, I think, was for my husband, who was my fiance at the time, and he was in the car behind. So he witnessed the accident and was terrified that I died, basically. Oh my God, I can't imagine how that must have been for you and your family. Yeah. What happened then? You were in the hospital for five weeks and you don't remember any of it? No, I have a few islands of memory. I don't remember the helicopter coming to pick me up. Apparently I was very agitated. I was unconscious to start with. Then I was very agitated and I was in intensive care for, I think, five days. And the rest of the time I was sharing a room for a while and then I had a room on my own. But because they diagnosed me just with a CT scan and they didn't do an MRI or anything like that, they said I had a small right frontal low bleed and that was all and so I could go back to work and forget all about it oh my god <laughs> yeah so that's crazy it was it was insane so I, I was I went back five months later just going twice a week to teach a lesson and to start with I got on the wrong train and went the wrong to the wrong place because I was really confused and uh, yeah I wasn't really at ease doing that the accident was in June I was back in October doing that and then in January the next year, January 2001, I started back teaching part-time, just the mornings, and it, I had a complete meltdown, basically. <laughs> I lasted two weeks, and then I couldn't, I couldn't sleep throughout those two weeks. I was wide awake, not consciously thinking about anything, but obviously very stressed, and I had depression and insomnia. Yeah, that's crazy. So at this point, did you have a proper diagnosis, or was it just what they said about the CT scan earlier? That was all it was, just what they said about the CT scan. And I basically moved from one hospital to another, and the second hospital didn't examine me any more closely than that. And my the doctor that was in charge of my case explained what had happened and said it was just this small bit of blood on the right frontal lobe 
but I, yeah, and I, at the time I thought, mm, okay, but I felt there was something more because there was just so many things that I found difficult. I couldn't name things. I went to my in-laws' house and there was a wheelbarrow and I didn't know what it was called. I was went to my husband, what's, what's that? And various other things I couldn't remember the names of. It was just really strange. And then I couldn't find words. Memory was just terrible. Yeah, I didn't really know what was going on. Really strange. So at this point, were you told just to rest or were there any treatments that they were giving you? Or like, how did you eventually get more support? Well, I never did really. I went back to the the first hospital to see the surgeon who was in charge of my case. And this was two months later. So I went back in August and I was very smiley, very cheerful throughout everything. And the doctor, the surgeon said, well, you know, you, you're obviously fine. You can go back to work and forget everything, anything that happened to you. It's uh, it's not a problem. Then my doctor at the, in the new hospital I went to found that a bit strange. So she sent me to see a neuropsychologist who did some tests and discovered that I was poor in word finding. I think she gave me two minutes to name as many words as I could, the kid that become with M. And I think I came up with two in two minutes. And she said her daughter was a teacher and she said, I don't think you'll be able to teach again. But I at the time was like, oh no, I'm better than that. I can, I can do it. <laughs> and I never, never really accepted that. And nobody else had said anything like that to me. So I thought, no, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> but she was in complete, completely right. I was a primary school teacher. So I was, work, I was supposed to work all day with 25 children. And it was, it was impossible to teach because I couldn't remember children's names, which I think is awful. When you've got children of five and six and you can't remember what their names are. I think that's just terrible. Couldn't remember what I was teaching. I had to keep looking back at notes. I couldn't control a class, which had never, ever been a problem before. They wouldn't listen to me and I didn't know what to do. I'd, I'd forgotten all my teacher training of how to work with children. So I felt I was a complete failure. Uh, I just, you know, I thought, well, the doctors say I'm all right. Why can't I do it? I don't understand what's the matter. And I was signed off several times over the next couple of years. And then I got pregnant with my daughter and I was demoted to a classroom assistant for a couple of years, which I didn't enjoy very much. And then eventually after I'd had my daughter, I went back to work. The, the, the headmaster changed and in I think it's 2007 I finally got a class on my own again I was teaching in the mornings just maths and English and music and that I felt that was a massive achievement I was really proud of myself that I pushed hard and I got a great deal of self-love from actually getting back there and teaching and doing what I felt was a good job I identified over the next three years I think it was nine or ten children with dyslexia I could see that these children had problems I'd been an assistant in the class with these children the years before and I was worried already about why they weren't succeeding, why they were doing badly when they seemed quite able, bright, but reading and writing was such an issue for them. So I developed a new love of dyslexia and understanding dyslexia. And I think I did a, yeah, I did a really good job over the next three years and I was really happy, but also exhausted. Uh, it was just, it was just too much. I also had my daughter to care for then. So yeah, all in all, it was, it was becoming too much. So in That's amazing that you were able to do that. That's truly an incredible story of perseverance. Did you find that over time your ability to find words in your memory improved or did you work to improve it specifically? Do you have any advice for someone who may be having similar symptoms? Yeah, um, I found a lot of support groups on Facebook, which were, and I could talk to other survivors. Initially, it was quite difficult because in 2000, there were, the internet wasn't so full of information as it is now for the regular user. So I contacted Headway, it was a charity in the UK, and I was writing to another teacher who'd had a brain injury. We were discussing how difficult it is, and he couldn't do it, he'd stopped. And then eventually, when the internet became more accessible, 
I was able to look at brainline.org and also BIA, Brain Jewish Association of America, for more information. And I actually, I'm British, but I live in Switzerland. And Switzerland is very far behind the UK and the US in terms of understanding of brain injury. Hence the fact this doctor just said to me, surgeon said to me, you can go back to work and forget all about it. And never considered that I might have a more serious injury than I had. So I would say my advice would be to... I did actually get some rehabilitation after 17 years and they suggested I use a program called Lumosity. Lumosity, yeah, I've used that before too. Yeah, I found that really helpful. And also they advised me on how to organise myself better because obviously I I had executive dysfunction. So planning, organising, timekeeping, time generally was just all very hard. I was always late um, for appointments or I missed appointments. It was really tricky. So yeah, I would say to other people, organisation is really key. So planning everything is vital and I, I find that quite a struggle to continue with because it's it means you've got to plan everything you do to the minutest detail like I, I park my car in the same place I go to the same shops I don't go to different supermarkets because I can't remember the layout so I stick to the one shop and the one same parking space I write my shopping list I photograph my shopping list because the number of times I've lost it in between writing it down and getting to the shops is was crazy so that and and using Lumosity was really good for memory training yeah I, I, there's lots of games on there you can do to, to check, check your memory and also improve my vocabulary because I was very academic before the accident happened I was studying for a master's in education with a view to promotion at work so I just finished the first year of that actually and passed that but suddenly I, I found my vocabulary vocabulary was poor and Lumosity helps you an awful lot with finding new other ways of saying things in different words. I tended to get stuck in the same vocabulary all the time so it was it was useful to get some hints on how to improve that which Lumosity is really really ha- helpful with. Yeah that's awesome. I always find it so interesting to hear about how people who are like have these jobs have all these goals find ways to compensate for all these crazy disabilities they suddenly have. I think it's so great how you figured out that you need to park in the same parking spot you need to photograph your list so not enough just to make the list. I think that's amazing that you were able to do that. It takes a level of being lover and really thinking things through and trying to really figure it out. I think that's really amazing. I guess you go through things. Yeah, I've had a similar experience where I've been like, well, I really want to get this thing done. How do I do it? How can I figure it out? How can I do something a little weird, like record my notes or whatever to get it done? And I think that it's a really incredible skill to have. Do you feel that people in your life have understood what it's like to live with these limitations and have to figure out clever ways to do things or different ways to do things? Yeah, it's, I think one of the benefits of brain injury is that it does show you who really is a good friend, a loving member of the family, because those people try to understand the best that they can. Um, so though I've lost some friends, and initially I was upset about that, actually, I'm glad because the, the people that are left are the ones that really matter and the ones that really care and the ones that didn't. I'm better off without quite honestly. Yeah, my, my stepmom especially has been brilliant. We've raised quite a lot of money for Headway in the UK. We've done lots of walks for charity. We did, we've done a walk from London to Brighton in the UK. Um, we've, we've done along the Thames, 50 kilometres in a day. Yeah, we've done a lot of things. She's really supported me a lot. She is actually a retired nurse, so she looked into it more, understood it more than normal people, can, ordinary people can. And that's that was really great. That's amazing. Can you go a little more in depth into like, 
like you mentioned earlier, your advocacy efforts and how that's something that you're really passionate about and really helped your recovery. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, sure. So as I said, I found the Facebook groups really useful, but I I wanted to set up one myself that was for people like me who were brain injured in a place that wasn't their home. That was my initial thought because I'm I'm living in Switzerland, which is French speaking where I am. So everything I've had to do, I've had to do in French with a bit of English, which has been extra hard. And I wanted to set up a group that would help people like me going through that kind of situation. But in fact, there's, there was such a need for everyone to understand who had a brain injury, ways to cope with it, that my aim changed somewhat and it became more for anybody globally. I started the group Brain Injury Survivors Global. I've now let it leave because I, I was too much. Uh, I did it for a couple of years and it was it became a bit too much, but uh, it's still going. And my idea was to post news articles, information to help people understand what had happened to them and understand what kind of outcomes there might be. Obviously, every brain injury is different just as every person is different. So you can't say for sure what's going to happen to people, but you can at least let them know the kind of things that might happen, like aphasia, not not finding words, like executive dysfunction and finding planning an organization difficult, which could well happen to quite a lot of people. So I set that up myself. I also did a local radio interview because I knew a DJ around here. So I spoke on local radio about brain injury, um, TBI. And then also I did a national Swiss television article, I suppose, about brain injury and, and recovering from it. And that that actually took most of the day to film and completely exhausted me because I was speaking French. And by the end of the day, it was interesting that I couldn't remember what I was going to say in English or French. I got the person doing the program to tell me what I was trying to say. And she would say it to me and I would forget it straight away because I was just totally blown away by by the end of the session. But now advocacy meant I made links with other people. So I, I know I call friends, people I've never actually met, but are in the States, are in Greece, the UK, Switzerland, all over the world, Canada, some great people in Canada doing work over there. So I made great links with them, which helped me feel better about myself and hopefully helped them feel better too. I I had this feeling in mind that, and I had a a meme that I posted once, if I can reach out and help just one person, then that's, that's really great. Now that I'll be, I feel really fortunate if I can help one person feel a little bit better about it, which also then makes me feel better that I've actually done something to help somebody else. I think brain injury, another, another benefit of brain injury, I think you become a lot more empathetic, a lot more caring. So it's, there are lots of silver linings, even though it's a quite a dark cloud at times. Yeah, no, I think that's incredible. I think that there's something to be said for talking to people and explaining your experience and reflecting on your experience that can be really therapeutic for people and just finding people who understand what you're going through because I think it is all in your head. All these symptoms are happening inside your head and unless someone else has had similar symptoms or a similar experience, it's really hard to truly understand it and truly understand the frustration behind it. So I think having support groups and setting up a support group like you did is really incredible and I think it's really important. We'll need to be doing more of that. Mm. But from like your experience of talking to people and advocating. What are some misconceptions that people have had about your injury? Well, I've heard, as as you probably have heard as well, um, oh yes, my memory's bad too from people. And I've said yes, but I was 28 when I began to have a terrible memory. And at 28 is not the age when you're usually having memory problems. And another thing is I find social, social interaction is quite challenging because I think of something and I've kind of got to say it straight away or it's going to go out of my head. So I've found it, I've interrupted people or I've suddenly come out with something because I've had to get it out of my mouth before it disappears completely. And I think that happens to a lot of people. And and other other people who haven't survived a range who don't really understand how difficult 
social interaction can be uh, at times. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really challenging. And I think it's hard to even remember what you're going to say long enough to say it at the proper time. For me, that that's something that's difficult is figuring out, especially if you're saying something funny, you need to say it at the right moment and like actually saying the words out of your mouth the same as there are in your head. Sometimes I'll say words and I'll say like the synonym for the word instead of the word I mean. And you're like, oh man, that's yes. not what I meant to say, but you really can't explain it to the people around you. No, that's right. You go around in circles because you can't think of the right words. <laughs> exactly. From your experience as an advocate and someone who's understood like the brain injury community in depth, what do you think needs to be done in order for there to be a better understanding of people who suffer from these illnesses? So what do you think needs think to be done in much, this field? I think there needs to be a much better understanding of, uh, of something that happens to millions of people throughout the world. I know there's many millions in the U.S., and in the UK every year, in Europe every year, and yet it's still not understood. The surgeon who saw me didn't consider that I could have had diffuse axonal injury, which is what I actually had. It turned out in 2015, I had a seizure and it was apparently because I'd had a change of medication and I was under so much stress that it was just too much for, for me and I had a seizure and I haven't worked since then. But it's taken another five years before this has been understood. And I think education for medical professionals and also for people generally is vital to help people understand that there are so many people going through this worldwide and suffering when they don't really need to be suffering as much as they are. Um, I think that would really help. I know it's difficult to achieve because people get bored of hearing about how you're doing. I mean, people ask me how I am. I still fine, thanks, but I'm not always fine. But there's no, it, what I have tried to describe how I'm feeling to somebody before and I've watched their eyes glaze over. <laughs> they don't really understand and don't really want to understand what it's all about. So I think education is, is vital. Um, there's a, a guy I know in the UK called Andy Nicholson, who's known as the, the brain damaged baron. And he does great videos. I don't know if you've ever seen any. He does great videos talking about brain injury and how he feels and different different things that happen to him. And someone like that entertains as well as, as ed educating. And that's that's important. I tried to talk to, well, I did talk to children at Mother's School where I was working. I, talk, I had, a, had an assembly where I talked to them about brain injury, just to try and encourage them to think carefully about how, what they're doing, like making sure they've got a, a helmet on when they're on the bike or on, on the skis, because obviously over here skiing is a big thing. Also to make sure they're sensible in the car, not distracting parents, making sure they've always got a seatbelt on. It's, it's, it's illegal to not have one in Switzerland and a lot of Europe, but still people sometimes don't and that can cause loads of problems so yeah education yeah it's, it's hard to know how but uh, I think that helps yeah I totally agree with you I think that the lack of understanding is just so significant in some places and I think people sometimes think they understand but they really don't and I think that when people understand that's only when they can be really empathetic and really help people who are suffering from these problems is if they have that understanding. So it's really hard to be empathetic. I don't have any other questions. Do you have anything else that you want to tell our listeners or any pieces of advice that you have from your journey? No, I would say if people are unsure of how they're doing, if they can try to see a neuropsychologist, I find that those that they are the medical professionals that are the most useful because they can find your strengths and your weaknesses and help you deal with the weaknesses by using your strengths so things like organization 
are vital, as I said, to help you to deal with the way things are now. The fact that you're different and it's, it, again, as I said, it's different for everybody, but it's probably a kind of lifelong journey that's ongoing all the time. My latest issue is anxiety. I did actually recently see a neurologist who is an expert in brain injury, finally, <laughs> last year. And he said, I said to him, why am I anxious? Why? I, mean, I said, I'm not thinking about anything, that nothing is consciously bothering me. And yet I'm not, I don't sleep well. I get butterflies in my tummy, anxiety, anxious feeling. Why? And he said, it's because you carried on fighting for so long to, to work with no support, with no rehabilitation and no help. And that's why you are as you are now. So people need to need to realise that they shouldn't push themselves. They should yeah, take it very easy. Baby steps is a popular term on brain injury groups, just taking it as steadily as you can. That's really, it's really important. Yeah. I don't know if I've blathered on. No, a that's, I, I totally agree. I think that's an awesome answer. And I learned so much from talking to you. I'm sure that all our listeners will too. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been amazing. Um, and I really appreciate you having the strength and courage to share your story.